Today's scripture is taken from Romans 10, verse 14 to 21. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have, not, have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have. For their voices have gone out to all the earth, and their words to the ends of the world. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. This is God's word. Thank you, Ethan, for reading God's word for us this morning. And thank you for being here, church. It's good to meet with you. I know that we have been walking through the book of Romans, a book or letter written specifically to the Apostle Paul. Much like are we that was in transition. You recall that uh, originally it was made up of Jewish believers in Christ, a part of the diaspora who had been pushed out of the persecution in Jerusalem, found themselves in Rome. And yet, while they were in Rome, the Emperor Tiberius, uncomfortable with the growing Jewish presence, banned Jews from Rome. And so they left, and now they came back to a church that had changed. Last week, we were in the middle of a very troubling period for the Apostle Paul, oh, sorry, who couldn't figure out this theological conundrum. How was it that God's chosen people, a people of God's own choosing, still yet rejected him? How was it some of your friends, some perhaps of your family, maybe some who grew up in a Christian tradition, some who went to a mission school and yet somehow are continuing to reject the grace of God in their lives. These three chapters, 9 through 11, the Apostle Paul is spending on this topic. But before I get into the text this morning, um, while, while we were still in Canada on our, our leave, uh, we were on our, our property and my daughter-in-law decided to take a video of me and her daughter my granddaughter, we had borrowed a paddleboard from our neighbors. And I've never done paddleboarding before, but one of the um, unfortunate quirks about me is whenever I look at something I've never done before, I automatically assume I can do that. That's risk tolerance. And I don't know if my daughter-in-law has risk tolerance, but she, she, she let me uh, take her daughter on a paddleboard in the Pacific Ocean. And I'm not gonna show you the whole video because number one, it, it will take too much time, and number two, you will never trust me again with children. 
But just a, you know, a series of screen grabs will help you know the general sequence of, of what had happened. And now first, here we are, I'm standing up. Some people would kneel, but I, am, I embrace risk. And so I told her, Olivia, you gotta stand, otherwise it's not real. And so she stood, and then I stood behind her and balanced. Now, now for those of you who have never paddleboarded, whenever you get to this position, <laughs> there's no going back. Just, just so you know ahead of time, you get here, you're not, you're not riding that board. You're, you're just going to have a crisis. And in moments of crisis, people respond in different ways. I just em embrace it. My, my daughter-in-law is a millennial, so in that moment of crisis, she kept filming. <laughs> because you gotta have an upload for Instagram, apparently. <laughs> this, this is the moment of truth. My little grandbaby, with the life jacket, had hands out, crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna! <laughs> No, sorry, she doesn't speak Aramaic. She was crying out, save me, save me. Even though she had a life jacket, she cried out automatically in crisis, save me. I think this is perhaps why Jesus observed, truly I say to you, unless you turn, that's that word, repent. Unless you repent, and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of God. Why? Because children are quick to seek a savior. Olivia wasn't looking for the best man in the ocean. She was just looking for the closest man in the ocean. But when we become adults, we learn different things. We learn we don't need anybody. Trust in yourself, depend upon your own efforts. And that's why, though I have watched that video over a dozen times, it now makes me sad. Because I, I realize that in 10 years, Olivia is not going to be turning to her outgoing saying, save me, save me. She's going to be turning to me and saying, I got this. I, I got it. Because she's going to learn from us. Do it yourself. Figure life out. That's the Chinese or the Anglo-Saxon work ethic. Lift yourself up by your own bootstraps, my dad used to say. You know, work hard. In fact, we've developed all of these support behaviors, behaviors that support the idea that we are responsible for everything that goes well in our life and everything that goes wrong is somebody else's problem, somebody else's fault. We deflect, shift blame from ourselves to something or somebody else. And if you walk on the pavement, in Canada we call it sidewalk here, if you walk on the pavement, you've seen this behavior many, many times. Because when someone is walking on the pavement in Singapore and suddenly stumbles, I've never seen anyone go, ah, what's my problem? I'm so careless. No, they always turn back and blame the pavement. <laughs> what? What is this? It's reaching up and, and grabbing me. And so the Apostle Paul has grief about a people, his people, who have grown up. 
and live with the deception they no longer need a living God to save them. But somehow, if they just keep the general rules, they can save themselves. They can be their own Messiah. They can craft their own salvation. And last week, he ended his message. Remember, he's accessing all the sermon archives, not of his own messages, but of Israel's best preachers. And last week, he borrowed a sermon from preacher Moses in Deuteronomy 30 when Moses set up this courtroom scene. And in that courtroom scene, God calls creation, all of creation, to serve as witnesses against his people. And he ends that message with this just this expectant exclamation of hope. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But, but now he turns more somber. He's not just preaching again his own message. Anyone who calls upon the name shall be saved. That's not a new New Testament message. That's from preacher Joel. Or I know in Singapore you say Joel, which may be closer to the Hebrew. It's his sermon. Anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But now he turns again in our text this morning and he gives as almost an advocate for the people, a defense lawyer, Israel's legal counsel, and he gives five reasons why they are still unsaved. Five reasons why people you know are tenaciously lost. It's a defense. Now, I know that some preachers, some theologians will say, no, these are just five components or five steps to salvation. If you would like that, that's okay. But I'm extending, assuming the Apostle Paul is still in that courtroom drama. One passage, Romans 10, and now he is legal counsel. Five reasons he gives. First reason he gives... Sorry, I've got to move my slide. In verses 14 through 15 is, they haven't called on Christ. You've got friends who are not believers, assuming everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. They're not saved because they, what? Haven't called on the name of the Lord. That's a defense. We can see it. How can they call on him, though? Second point. They don't believe in him. Why would you call on a plumber if you don't believe he can fix your problem? The second defense is they, they don't believe. That's why they're not saved. They don't believe on him, so they don't call Hosanna, save me. How can they if they haven't believed? And then the third thing is they, they, they just haven't heard. Now, in a day before Google or Facebook or YouTube or wherever you get your news, in a day in which parchment was astronomically expensive and the majority of every people population did not read the primary way that people knew something is by hearing in fact the news as you remember from acts was called out on the street corner this is why in the very first chapter of romans paul said i'm not ashamed of this good news why because the news in an autocratic society, could not be trusted. The emperor was always awesome. Nobody ever had problems. Everyone in Rome has food. And so Paul says, I'm not ashamed of this good news that I'm calling out. Because it's a power of God for everyone leading to salvation. 
They have not heard. It's the primary way people know something is by hearing. And of course, how can they believe if they've never heard the message? And the problem also, he said, this is the fourth point, the fourth point in his defense. People of Israel, they're lost because no one is preaching. Now, it's important for us to understand that we have codified this word preaching. We've made it special. We think preachers have a special lifelong vocation. The only one who preaches is a professional, so preaching needs special training. Preaching needs a special platform and a special pulpit and special notes. But this word is a simple secular term in Greek, caruso, which means calling. No one's calling. No one said, Olivia, look out. Your agon can't be trusted on a waterboard. That's what it is, not a paddleboard. When your agon is on, it's a waterboard. No one warning. How, how can we know? See, the gospel is not just good news. Because this caruso is combined with engelion, which means speaking. The best definition of the gospel is not simply good news. The best definition of gospel is good news proclaimed. Why? Because good news is, that is not proclaimed is not good. It's just irrelevant. When I was in college in America, of course, when you're a foreign student, you, you can't work. Um, you're on a student visa. And, and so one of my uh, professors kind of felt badly for me, this poor Canadian boy who has no means of income. So he would invite me to his farm to work on his farm and he would just pay me cash so I could go to the canteen and get my lunches. And so my first week on Dr. Buffington's farm, I was inside the fencing and I leaned over and put my hand on the fence and it knocked me on my back. And then he called out, oh, that fence is electrified. <laughs> By that time, it's not good news. It's just ironic news. Ironic that you wouldn't tell me beforehand. Some of you are living with ironic news. You've got it. It's good, but it's not gospel because we're not declaring it. We hire preachers for that. And this is a part of Israel's defense. Nobody's talking about it. We don't have anyone declaring it. And the fifth reason is because, you know, God's fault, pavement, he's not sending anybody. And this word sending is apostolon. So for those of you who don't think there's any apostolons today, that's part of the problem. That's part of Israel's defense. There are no missionaries going. It's God's fault. He's not calling out people. He's not sending people. He's gathering people in buildings with walls that have soundproofing so we don't trouble our neighbors with the ironic news that salvation is close at hand. No one is preaching Fifth point, case closed. 
There it is. You know, deism teaches that there is a creator God who made everything. Evidence of God is in all of creation. And in Canada, there are a lot of deists. They would come to me every once in a while on the train. They say, oh, I hear you're a pastor. I don't go to church. I find him in nature. They're deists. In deism, God is not a pathetic, pleading, jilted lover. He's aloof, powerful. He made everything, then stepped back and said, figure it out. How grateful I am that the Apostle Paul was not a deist. Because Paul's God was active in the world. So after giving these five points of defense as the you know, advocate for the people of Israel, he suddenly shifts role and becomes the crown prosecutor. After giving five defenses, he says, now here's one biblical reason why my people the people of Israel, while your friends, while your relatives remain lost, it's because in verses 16 and 17, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, the Lord has, or sorry, Lord, who has believed what we have, what, sorry, what he has heard from us. So faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Now, just so you know, he's not saying two different things. He's not saying, well, who has obeyed, who has heard. They're the same thing. He's not saying who has obeyed the gospel, one thing, and who has heard the word of Christ, same thing. When we talk in scripture in the New Testament about the word of God, we're not talking about the Bible. We're talking about the good news of the gospel that has been proclaimed. He's saying this specifically for emphasis. Who has obeyed? Who has heard? Did it ever occur to you that our salvation requires obedience? Cultures inform language. And that's why in ancient cultures, in the oldest languages, the word here... It's inconceivable in those cultures that one would hear something and not respond to it. So often in the world's oldest languages, hear actually means obey. So in Mandarin, Tinghua means what? Not listen words. It means obey. That's why in Hebrew, one of the other world's oldest languages, a language without any ancestor, Shema, Shema, however you call it, hear, O Israel, means obey. See, you understand in that sermon in Deuteronomy chapter 6, this is how it begins in verse 1. Now, this is the what? Commandment. The statues, the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you that you may what? Listen to them 
So that after the sermon, you would come up to me and say, Pastor Moses, good message. No, so that you would do them in the land which you are going over to possess it. Hear, therefore, O Israel, be careful to do them, that it may go well with you. You see, in modernized, democratic, Western cultures, we have learned that we are the, the authority. And so I grew up listening to my parents, but not always obeying to my, my parents, right? Because we are taught that everything we should hear ought to be filtered through my own truth. I hear this a lot back home. Speak your truth, bro. What do you mean? Does that mean in Canada there's 37 million truths? Everybody's got their own? So years ago when Sherry and I were still in Penang, we only had one son left with us. Three sons, but only one still in the home. Uh, Brennan was attending school, and I was getting ready to go on a trip, and I said to Brennan, hey, Brennan, listen, while I'm gone, I'd like you to wash the car. Sure. So I get back to a dirty car. And so I, I said to him, Brennan, did you not hear me? I said, when I'm gone, I'd like you to wash the car. Did you not hear that? He said, yeah, I heard you, but, you know, it was going to rain, and I just thought it would be a waste of effort. <laughs> Didn't want to waste any energy. I said, I don't want to waste any energy either, but if I don't beat you, you'll never learn. No, <laughs> I didn't do that, I, you know, because Sherry. <laughs> This is why James, as he wrote an increasingly Western audience in James chapter 1, said, don't deceive yourselves. Be doers of the word, not just hearers. This is an important issue for us, friends. Because, you know, in an island like Singapore, people have plenty of church options. So I've noticed, I go on websites, I've, no, I've noticed because there are so many options in Singapore, churches have been defining themselves on their websites by what we believe. You know, we've, we carve out a market niche with a theological knife. So especially those churches that, like us, lean reformed, we encourage people to come to our church because we believe the right things about God's word. Come to our church because suggesting, unlike those other churches that are fine, but our church is more than fine. Our doctrine is orthodox. Go on our website. You can see what we believe and also see our theological distinctives. Right, so, so I want to ask you a, a rather inflammatory question. Do you, do you think Satan suffers from bad theology you think that's his issue he just doesn't get it he doesn't doesn't know the word of god and so you know he's just on his own doing his own rebellious thing not really his fault jesus constantly was addressing this and it's preserved for us in the gospels this passage in mark chapter 1 verses 23 and through 25, Jesus encounters a demon-possessed man. 
And the demon looks right through the flesh of that Galilean religious teacher and cries out to the Son of God, I know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. Immediately, evil knew the Lord. Immediately, he gave a confession. You're not just a rabbi. You're the Holy One. And, and then this passage in James chapter 2, as the church was growing and establishing itself and feeling quite smug that we believe all the right things, James writes that great church and says, you believe that God is one, good for you. The devil believes and trembles. What good is it? If we believe all the same things as the evil one, I find this passage particularly meaningful. Matthew chapter 8, verse 29. Jesus walks into a synagogue. Are you hearing this? The place where God's word is taught. And there, who should he meet but a man full of not one demon, but a legion of demons. And one man opens his mouth and a legion responds, what? Have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Do you, do you understand what Scripture is saying to us? The devil not only knows that Jesus is the Son of God, Messiah, he knows the cosmic calendar. He knows the day is coming when he will be yanked out of this planet and thrown into the depths of hell and imprisoned there forever, and yet still he remains profoundly lost. Beloved, we are not damaged because of good theology, but good theology doesn't keep us safe either. Four weeks ago, Sherry and I had a traumatic message. A dear, dear friend of ours, a young man full of Christian heritage, a part of the young reformed movement, leading a new and large church, lost his ministry and his family because even though he had great theology, he didn't know he was still a man of flesh who needed to embrace the gospel every day. This is the word of Paul inspired by the Holy Spirit in chapter 10 of Romans. Yes, we can call ourselves God's beloved, but the only reason we can reach toward him is because he gives us the grace to do it. John Piper says this, the devil admits Jesus' power and final victory, but he hates it. We, on the other hand, only by the Holy Spirit can we love it. Just as the Apostle Paul wrote last week, he comes to us circumcises our hearts, 
carves away the hardness that I myself had embraced. He loves us. He comes to us. He cuts that away. We are then able to turn to him. We are then able to repent. And don't think that repentance of a seven-year-old boy is good enough for this 62-year-old man. The gospel is not for one time. It is for every day. Every day, he gives us the grace to turn to him. Every day, he sets us apart for holy devotion to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And that is why we can be found in Christ. So because of this, they are without excuse. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed, they have for as, by the way, we read this as our call to worship. Scripture says, their voice has gone out to all the earth, their words to the ends of the earth, taken from a sermon from the psalmist. All of creation speaks. But more than that, God added special grace to the people of God. He sends his messengers all of the five requirements he himself has met. He's ascending God who sends his preachers, his messengers, who speak a word that can be heard so that we might call to the God who seeks us and pursues us. But more than that, he adds an additional grace to the people of Israel. He allows them to see this grace extending beyond them to an ignorant, profane, uncircumcised, unclean, uninstructed people like Europeans, like Asians, who receive the word and call out, Oh God, Hosanna, save me. And yet still they filter it through their own effort. He has been found by all of us who were not seeking. Perhaps like me, born into a family that was not seeking. And yet somehow this God of grace and mercy found us in the middle of our not searching. This is the grace of God our lives are living testimony to his precious people of Israel who persistently, rebelliously reject him. And so, verse 21, and still God waits. So, as you know, Sherry and I have many problems because we're so different. One problem is we can't even agree on what TV show to watch. In part because she likes series, you know, ADHD. I can't, I can't stay focused on a long show, let alone a long series. So YouTube is perfect for me, like four-minute clips. So I can watch that. Then I got to get up and walk away. But she convinced me just, you know, couples bonding. <laughs> to just, you know, out of my affection for her, 
maybe just watch this one short season. It's from Australia. It's not American. You might like, like the Commonwealth. So she convinced me to sit down and watch the first episode of this Australian show called Wanted. I'm not recommending. It's just a teaching moment. So the, the, the amazing thing about this show Wanted is it two ordinary ladies, Australian ladies, who sit at the same bus stop every night after work. One is an older, street-smart lady named Lola, who can never keep a job because she's always shouting and disrespecting her supervisors. She's got ink, you know, so she's really living on the edge. And, and then there's this younger, very anxious accountant named Bridget, who's anxious about everything, is a real rule keeper, you know, has asthma, anxiety brings on asthma attacks. She's got peanut allergies, every problem, let's still give her distance. And they're suddenly thrown into this adventure together while waiting at that bus stop. There's a car crash, men get out shooting at each other. Uh, one man is shot and, and another man grabs them because they're like, look, they're witnesses. We got to take care of them. I'm going to shoot them. Shoot them now. And Lola, being really street smart, manages to get the gun and turn it on him. I don't know. She's like, Wonder Woman. <laughs> and so he's dead. And then there's the other guy standing there. And he kidnaps them both. And they're like, we got to call the police. we got to call the police. You know, Bridget's having an asthma attack in the back. And he says to them, you just shot the police. So, so the whole episode is them running from the dirty cops who want to kill them and also running from the mafia. It's kind of exciting. I paid attention a lot of the time. And then last week, we finally got to the last episode. And I thought, finally, my marital bonding can be released from that. And <laughs> so this is the last scene of the last episode. And they've just decided because they've, you know, exonerated themselves, but not completely because they both have stuff in their, their backgrounds, their history that needs to be dealt with by the law. So they decide we're going to get some of the money. Yeah, millions of Australian do dollars and drugs in this car that they were kidnapped in that they drove around for an entire season. And, you know, finally they just took the money and like, let's, let's go live life. You know, we got nothing here in Australia. Let's go, go somewhere and just enjoy our newfound friendship. We're different, but we bonded in this season. And then the phone rings. And the voice is, did you think this was over? The big gang boss. <laughs> Calling them up. Then the screen goes to black. The season's over. It's called a season-ending cliffhanger. It's a cinematic scam to get you anxious for the next season, to keep you loyal to the binge-watching wife. I'm oh, sorry, no. <laughs> that word wasn't from the Lord. That's, <laughs> you know. And so there we are stuck. Oh, I've got to watch another seven episodes of this. Now, now here's the thing. As we come to this, Last verse of the episode of Romans 10, you might be tempted to think it's over. Because there he stands. The jilted lover. All day long I've held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. But here's the truth of the gospel. 
Waiting is not weakness. It is grace. Christ is not good and helpless. He is good and sovereign. He is king of creation. And notice here, Paul is not trying to solve the theological conundrum between the sovereignty of God and the liberty of you. He's simply declaring it is what it is. And we trust in the grace of this sovereign God who stands with open arms waiting for a disobedient and contrary people. God sends his messengers. They beckon. They call out good news. Some, like children, will call Hosanna, God, God of grace, of mercy, sovereign Lord of creation. Save me. Save me. It's not the pavement's fault. I trip because I'm broken and fallen. It's not my parents' fault. The biggest problem I have is myself. Come and carve my heart up. Make it soft and open to you. God's work in us makes my bending toward him possible. I'm not going to filter it through my own truth. I'm going to listen and obey. So here's a moment of reflection. Last week we heard there's one road to righteousness. How did you get here? How is it that in the midst of all the possibilities in your life, amidst all the places you could be right now, you find yourself in this place at this moment because God is good and sovereign. He has arranged this space, this time, this moment for you to hear one more time. Hear, listen to this declared good news. He is God, you are not. Your way will lead you stumbling into the grave. God's way leads to life. Think about for a moment, as your heads bow with me, what clear evidence can you think of in your life of a sovereign God working perhaps even before you knew it? What, what evidence in your personal story is there of a God who stands pursuing, watching, arms open, sending, speaking, chipping away at the hardness in your own heart, allowing you mercifully to experience disappointment, grief, brokenness, inviting you to look his way, 
expecting that your heart will follow your eyes and find him. How has he seasoned your life with witnesses to his grace and mercy? How has he provided you far beyond your expectation? Moment after moment to know that he is. He lives and he knows your name. Perhaps this morning you feel like you need to talk to somebody. Just, you sense something in your heart, but you don't know what to do, how to respond. After our service this morning, there are going to be elders standing here at front. Maybe you just want to approach one of them and give them the joy of helping you to turn to him today. Maybe it's the first time. Maybe like the people of Israel, you've been camped out on all, all the things, all the reasons why you insist on finding your own way and plotting your own course. But if today you sense him near, it's not because you've heard a convincing speech. It's because God is alive and he loves you. He is good and it is his sovereign purpose that you would be filled with peace and holy confidence in difficult days. That you would live and live abundantly, not just exist. Or, or maybe you're already a Christian. Maybe you're a, a church member. Then maybe you're just like your pastor. And you realize that last time I turned, it's not good enough for today. The gospel that was real then is real now. And every day I awake is an opportunity for me to turn afresh to him. Every breath I draw is an opportunity for me to exhale with Hosanna. Oh God, save this man, save this woman. Be real in this day that I might know whatever difficulty this day contains, whatever challenges face me this week, I do so in the shadow of the Almighty who stands over me with arms open, willing to embrace and strengthen and heal. Father God, remind us that you have loved us with such outpoured love not even the blood in Jesus' perfect veins were more precious. Help us remember that we were considered even more precious than the blood of Christ. 
that it flowed out in the midst of your affection for us. And help us remember that your affection remains even upon those who are stubbornly and rebelliously lost. That you are still sending faithful ones like us. Not because we're professional, not because we've studied, but because we've experienced the good news God send us from this place proclaiming good news, not just believing it. Help us, O oh God, remember that they cannot hear a message that has not been proclaimed. Help us remember that you are a God who calls us not only to come, but also to go. So God, we pray that you would remind us afresh that you each day do your work in us so that we might have the grace to repent, so that we may turn to you afresh. May we do so now in joy and in liberty, and we do it in Jesus' name. Amen. Will you stand with us as we close our time together?